Hello, my magical friends. My name's Ayumi. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And you're listening to Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Whether it's your first or 117th time listening, we welcome you to our space to celebrate magical girls from every corner of the world. I've watched a few things and there's a little bit of news and then we'll get into today's topic. So let's get started. So as always, I've been watching all of our currently airing Magical Girl and Magical Girl adjacent shows, Delicious Party Precure, Rista Top of Artists, Watcha Primaji, Ruby Ice Queendom, Smile of the Ars Notoria, Tokyo Mimi New, and Luminous Witches, which is one I'm catching up on, and so far it's so good. I also wanted to talk about something I finished watching, which was a very short watch, but I finally finished Bee and Puppycat, which I had watched before, but had never finished watching all the way through. Uh, I won't go into details because I don't want to spoil anyone, but there is a pretty big spoiler, like a big plot twist at the end of that first season. And this is all available online, by the way, uh, in one video on YouTube. But yeah, it was very interesting. And, you know, in anticipation for the new season starting, I was like, well, I got to finally actually watch the whole thing. It (laughs) it was very, uh, very shocking. But also makes it all the more exciting for when we get the next season coming out in the beginning of September. News-wise, I'm doing things a little out of order today, and you'll see why pretty quickly. (laughs) The first volume of the Magical Girl comic Maho Chunen, or Magical Middle Age, came out earlier this week. And this one I haven't read yet, but it's basically about... Yeah, it's just a magical girl parody in which the magical girl in question is actually a middle-aged man. It's published in Young Animals, so I do think it has more of a parodic element to it, but I can't actually comment on the content until I've read it. So there we have it. Also, I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast yet. The second volume of Flavor Girls did come out, so you can also check that out as well. I'll put a link in the show notes. (laughs) And finally, the most incredible timely news is Symphagear AXE just got released in English on Blu-ray by Discotech Media. So they literally announced it as of this recording about two hours ago. So truly the most incredible luck because that's also our topic today. So let's jump ahead to that, shall we? So yes, we are back in the world of Symphagear this week, and I mean, we do have enough of a gap, I suppose, between the last Symphagear episode and this one, but uh, the main reason why I jumped ahead into doing this season after doing the third one, and I think I'd probably already been watching the fourth season by the time the episode for the third one had come out... It's just because I had already been able to get a guest so quickly for it, which was an easy choice, honestly, because today's guest is Kat, who is a 
darling magical girl fan and podcaster and game designer, which is super cool. She's done a few things which you'll hear about, but in particular relevant to this series is she did a game which is modeled after Symphagear. So it does seem like the kind of perfect thing. Um, we met doing role-playing actually, uh, just not this one, but we did it for Super Idols. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> so we did a, a bonus game together, which if you are a Super Idols fan, you can check out on the Patreon feed whenever that comes out. Um, not yet, but it'll be there. <laughs> and yeah, so it just was like kind of a match made in heaven. And when I asked them like, oh, which season that we have left would you like to talk about? She was very excited about this one. Before we jump into the actual meat of the discussion, we do need to give some warnings. So uh, as is quite common with Sinfigure, generally there is, you know, a lot of unfortunate nudity of teenagers. And this season also deals with family death and trauma. And in particular, we need to give a big warning for gender essentialism in the series and transphobia in the fandom because of that. So yes, keep that in mind before you listen. But, you know, generally, despite that, I think this is a fun series and a fun episode. So I hope you enjoy this discussion with Kat about Symphagear AXZ. Great, so we are here today to talk about Symphagear AXC, the fourth season of the Symphagear franchise, and I'm very excited for our guest today. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Kat, my pronouns are she or they, and I am a game designer. Yeah, we'll definitely get into your game stuff uh, later, but first, before we get started on Symphagear, what is your history with the magical girl genre? Well, I'm old enough that I watched Sailor Moon after school when I was very small. And so the English dub had a very, very important place in my childhood. And then when I got older, I started looking for more anime. I got more into it. And that's when I returned to Sailor Moon. I watched it all subtitled. And that was kind of one of the first series that I really tracked down subs for. And then... I watched some Wedding Peach, which I found delightful. I've always liked Magic Knight Ray Earth. I've never been as obsessed with it as Sailor Moon. So a lot of my magical girl taste is kind of shaped by the 90s. Sure, that makes sense. And then and the early aughts happened, and I was just extremely, extremely depressed and craving emotional empty calories. And that was when I found Mermaid Melody, Peachy Peachy Pitch, which I binge watched after I got dumped. <laughs> and I watched so much of it, I dreamt I was a mermaid princess. Perfect. Yes. Those are the best kinds of effects. <laughs> yeah. I guess Magical Girl anime has always been there for me when I have needed something to cry about that isn't real. Mm -hmm. I got very into Precure. I've watched, I think, every season, but I stopped, I stopped at Happiness Charge, I think. Oh, interesting. So you so. haven't watched anything past then? I haven't, although mutual friend Aaron has got me wanting to look at Kira Kira a la mode. So 
Mm-hmm. And Star Twinkle looks really cute. <laughs> Those are both very good seasons. I also recommend. I, I think that all seasons are enjoyable, but, you know, they're not all for everybody. <laughs> so it's up mm-hmm. to you. True. Mm-hmm. Is there any particular reason why you stopped that happiness charge? I think it's because my favorite, favorite season of Precure, like a lot of people, was Heart Catch. Hmm. And I thought that the main characters of Happiness Charge were trying to capture what made the Heart Catch leads so charming, but they were off by just a couple degrees. Hmm. And I just couldn't really get into it, I think. Interesting. Like, Cure Princess was similar to Cure Marin, but missing something. Hmm. Coincidentally, I did love Go Princess Precure. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that... um... The season, it's very interesting because that was an anniversary season. So they were trying to kind of like put a whole bunch of stuff together. Like, you know, they had the writer from Yes, Break Your Five on that season. And Mm -hmm. like they were really trying to kind of like reference everything at the same time. So, Mm. I mean, it is one of my favorite seasons. But that being said, I also... Cure Marine is the only precure I don't like. So, um. okay, that's valid. She's a brat. Like, like, I think it comes down to whether or not you find her brattiness endearing. I can't blame someone who doesn't. Like, yeah. (laughs) Hmm. But you are thinking about getting back to it at some point, then. Yes, indeed. Awesome. I have a great affection for precure. (laughs) Hmm. Great and. I guess, uh, so then these days, um, other than Symphigear, which we'll talk about soon, um, what else are you enjoying in the genre? Hmm. Well, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more at the end, but my efforts in the genre are more on the creating end than the consuming end these days. Hmm. But um, here's the thing. Following you on Twitter has really got <laughs> me very immersed in the Precure Twitter sphere to the point where half my Twitter feed is Precure fan art on any given day. Perfect. Yes. Good. (laughs) Yeah. Twitter's like, hey, you liked this picture, right? And I'm like, yeah, I did. I'm going to like this one too. Here you go. (laughs) So it's it's only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. I'm also considering rewatching Peachy Peachy Pitch because it's fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just love it. (laughs) Sounds like it was uh, there for you when you needed it for sure. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Great. So in that case, let's move on to Symphagear. So we are talking about the fourth season, but for anyone mm-hmm. who is listening and doesn't know anything about Symphagear, um, <laughs> this series has been around for about a decade now, and it is a partially like idol-ish and partially mecha magical girl series. The main system requiring uh, the use of relics and the gear users And, you know, they have to sing in order to kind of power up, basically. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first season started with um, Hibiki, who is a girl who became a gear user after an incident led her to having a gear embedded in her own body. And Tsubasa, who lost her partner, Kanade, in the same incident. They fight the noise, which is like the main kind of general monster. Eventually befriend another gear user named Chris and realize that they have to defeat this uh, goddess Fine before she destroys the moon. In the second season, which is Symphagear G, we get three extra gear users, Maria, Kirika, and Shirabe. 
and they are trying to uh, reawaken Fine and they think they're going to save the world, but it turns out that they were kind of on the wrong side of things. But luckily, by the end, they are all befriended by Hibiki and her friends. <laughs> so then by the third season, GX, we now have six magical girls. And our new villains are the alchemist uh, cult, led by Carol, who has been living in countless bodies over centuries, and her automatons, who are called autoscorers. They are defeated, but Carol also can transform, and she tries to fight to the death, but sees the wrong of her ways by the end, thanks to Hibiki. And she also, I guess, fuses her body with that of Elf Nine, who was her kind of final duplicate body, and she joins Song, which is the main organization that all the gear users are part of. Hmm. <laughs> so finally, we're at AXE season four. So um, here we learn that, you know, there's been a secret society kind of behind all of the events of the show thus far, the Pavarian Illuminati. And it is important that it is Pavarian, not Bavarian. I don't know what Bavaria <laughs> is. Um, <laughs> so they were kind of mentioned in passing in the past two seasons, but now they're the main antagonists. They're kind of like the originators of alchemy as we see it in the third season. And our three kind of main villainesses in this group are Saint-Germain, Cagliostro, and Prelati. And they also use the Philosopher's Stone over time to transform in their own way into magical girls, which is lots of fun. <laughs> and uh, the story also starts in South America. I don't think it's ever stated exactly where in South America, uh, but... South, somewhere in South America. And this place is also kind of a traumatic place for Chris because she used to live there when she was much younger and her parents were killed there. She has to kind of revisit some stuff while they're there. Eventually they do make their way back to Japan. But yeah, I think the only other thing is the other two other major members of the Illuminati are an autoscorer named Tiki who observes the stars and Adam, who is the founder of the organization. Yeah, I think that's everything uh so how did you get into the symphagear franchise i went through a couple years where i watched seasonal anime hmm. this wasn't a very long period of my life because it required a lot of free time from me hmm. and i was looking at a list of seasonal anime and this was when symphogear was first running and i was really charmed by the fusion of two of my favorite genres idol and magical girl hmm. I watched it and I found that it was like dark enough to feel different and in ways very impactful, but it didn't feel as self-indulgent as some darker Magical Girl series felt like. And the music is just really good. I genuinely fell in love with the music. <laughs> it is pretty fun. So I, I watched every season. I love it. I rewatch it regularly. It's one of my all-time favorite shows, and this is my favorite season of it, so so glad to be here. <laughs> Why do you think you love it so much? A big part of it is the music. The music is good, but there's also, there are a lot of themes in there that really resonate with me, I think. Themes about what it takes to be strong, what courage is, uh, you know, really standard magical girl stuff. I'm a sucker <laughs> for it every time. Sure, sure. But I think the characters are really interestingly written. They're all extremely likable. And Symphogear has a normal amount of darkness for a mech series. So when you overlay that onto a magical girl series, it seems weird. Hmm. 
But like, if Sinful Gear was a Gundam series, this level of darkness would be completely standard. Interesting. It would be middle of the road if this was Gundam. <laughs> and so I find that juxtaposition really fun and interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't, I guess, necessarily put that together myself because I've literally never watched Gundam. So just getting into like the story itself in more depth. So we have a lot of, you know, kind of interesting story arcs going on. So, you know, like we mentioned uh, with Chris, she has to kind of revisit a lot of her past and trauma, especially after she meets Sonia, who is, is a woman that helps kind of raise her when she was living there. A mistake that she made was hmm. what led to her parents getting killed. So, you know, Chris blames her for her parents' death, you know, and she was a kid. So understandably, like, it's something she has to revisit now as she's a lot older. We also get some interesting things regarding duets this season because, yes. <laughs> you know, we learned that it's like kind of almost obvious. But, you know, if the girls are singing together rather than uh, apart, then their songs become stronger and their powers become stronger. So we see them kind of explore that a little bit. I always joke that this is the season where they make it canon that Kirika and Shirabe are more powerful because they're gay. <laughs> yeah do you want to talk about that a little bit more <laughs> i just i love kirika and shirabe i love all the characters but i love those those sweet gay little children <laughs> they're both such dears they're both really wonderful i love the way their songs always overlap in every season mm -hmm. and so for the show to actually address like no genuinely the bond between them is their strength the fact that their songs overlap is in the fiction of the story as important as it is impactful just to a listener hearing the song mm -hmm. i love that they took the time to address that hmm. but yeah they're more powerful because they're gay and in love <laughs> and i love that for them i really do yeah yeah it's very cute and you know they have to like really kind of go through and figure out what it is you know about their bond that like makes them so strong and like how can they utilize that with the other girls it's like oh hey we have four other friends we can be singing with <laughs> maybe we should think mm. about that from time to time <laughs> yeah but yeah we get some interesting kind of new pairs of girls together basically which is nice i think there are a lot of things that are like about that particular storyline that kind of work for me in that like it kind of feels like something that you would get in like a standard kids show later down the line and of course, this is the fourth season of the show. So if you're counting all the episodes like from the very beginning, then we're in like episode like 40 to 52 or whatever. So it's like very much the kind of same vibe. <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah. that's one thing that I love about Sinful Gear in general is that it hits the story beats of a magical girl anime in the tone of a mecha anime. Hmm. It also kind of hits some idol anime story beats. It has some idol anime style to it. Mm -hmm. It's just a really interesting fusion of three genres <laughs> that are <laughs> kind of unexpected tastes when they're mixed together. Sure. Yeah. So uh, shall we talk about the villains of this season? <laughs> yes. Let's please. Definitely. I think so far they are my favorite villains. I've enjoyed the villains generally every season, but... I found that very fascinating and it's I think it's also just because of like them having to you know at this point in season four it's like how do we keep this going how do we make even more interesting villains and so we get these three characters that are very very cool yeah 
They're all kind of fun and very unique, but they're set together. Like Sandra Man is definitely the the leader, and I love her uh, outfit because like when she transforms, it's like she's like this kind of knight slash horse. Her hair is just so big. I'm a sucker for a knight motif. I love it every time. The big plume on her helmet. I love it. It's perfect. Yes, exactly. Like Saint Germain's style is androgynous in a way that I find super appealing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really feel particularly forced or anything. It's just like it seems very authentic and it feels very her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love characters that are like that. That have that kind of very casual androgyny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all these characters are like super old. <laughs> it's like basically this group yes. has been around for hundreds of years and these characters are all hundreds of years old. They don't really go into like a whole lot of detail about how that works exactly, but you can assume it's something similar to Carol's situation. You know, these characters are all named after real people. Yes. And in particular, I think they're all named after men, which makes sense. <laughs> That's because they're, those are the names that are famous in history and so on. But uh, yeah, so I was kind of wondering if that was like one of the reasons why uh, Sandra Mann's, uh not just her transformation, but like her, her normal costume also is like so... It's definitely still feminine because that's like the, the style of the show, but it also it just has a lot of like masculine qualities that are really interesting, like you said. Yes. Um, I kind of wondered if that was like a reasoning for it, but like I'm not sure. <laughs> because on the other hand, you know, uh, Cagliostro's outfits are very, very, very feminine, yeah. which is interesting. <laughs> I love Cagliostro. She can do no wrong in my eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's a lot of fun. She's very cute. I mean, her outfit is very, um, very not a lot of clothes. <laughs> it's, it, it's very risque. Yes. It's, yes. it's very mature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's very fun. And I love like her kind of style. The philosopher's stones that the three of them use are heart shaped. And so there's a lot of like heart motifs going on, which is kind of fun because it's like such a magical girl thing to have. Yeah. You know, hearts as a motif. <laughs> absolutely yeah and Cagliostro just really really loves to ham it up with all the hearts uh, it's really, it's really good <laughs> yeah I think that's why I love watching her fight so much mm-hmm. she's very feminine she's very flirty she's very sexual she hams it up with the hearts and yet in combat she's a boxer <laughs> yes <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's such a beautiful contrast when she goes in for those uppercuts that I adore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just love her. <laughs> I was trying to find if there was like any like information. There probably is an interview somewhere or other about like the inspirations for the different villains, like motifs and stuff. Because like Kayosha's hair is like giving Sailor Moon, but like in such an interesting way. Mm. That, like, it's almost unrecognizable unless you're, like, thinking about it. (laughs) But, yeah, it's just, like, it's just fun to watch her in action, like you said. Like, from, like, even just, like, the opening theme song. And I was, like, yeah, she's my favorite. (laughs) I can't believe she's my favorite, but she's my favorite. She's my favorite. Sandra (laughs) my favorite, but Cagliostra can do no wrong. Neither can Prolati. I love all three of them. Valid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, Prolati is interesting because, like, she... You know, it's the same age as everyone else, but she looks like a much younger girl. And 
that's kind of also shown in her uh, her transformation is very interesting because like she's very heavily cloaked mm. and there's like metal pieces on her cloak too it's like that looks so heavy but um yeah. then like her main suit is like technically all covered but are like still accentuating things in the same way as every other character in the show yeah it's an interesting choice i guess <laughs> yeah yeah i i do just i adore them Perlati is is also very very cute i think a lot of the appeal for the alchemists for me for the alchemist trio is the same as the appeal for the auto scorers in last season which is their loyalty mm -hmm. i am a sucker for a loyal villain hmm interesting like there are no ends to which Cagliostro will not go for Pilati and Sengerman mm -hmm. and that's just I think part of what makes her not only like a charming and fun and cute character but a genuinely very endearing one yeah that makes sense they definitely are very clearly a set team even though they're so different from each other in so many ways mm -hmm. so I think that's really interesting yeah <laughs> like Sandman's dignity and Prelati's kind of quiet smugness and Cagliostro's outgoing and bubbly nature. They're all very different, but they like they care a lot about each other. And I'm a sucker for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Every time. <laughs> yeah. So I guess like with that, you know, they're they're a pretty cool set. But getting into. Well, I guess the villain who is like really the villain, if that makes sense, is Adam. <laughs> Oh, wow, that guy sucks. Uh -huh. Oh, he's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> he's just, he's genuinely just despicable and super annoying. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love him from a meta perspective, from the perspective of just like, Symphogear gave us a villain that we can unambiguously think is just the worst. Uh huh. But, oh God, he sucks so much. <laughs> sure. He's awful. <laughs> Yeah, it's very fun um, because, like, I think also just, like, the way he, like, gets introduced and everything, it's, like, he, like, shows up and he just, like, has so much more power. He's also, like, shows up and he's, like, naked, <laughs> which is, yeah. like, I think it's very interesting because, like, the show obviously is very focused on a lot of female characters and there's a lot of ogling of their bodies and stuff and it's, like, suddenly we have a naked guy and just like oh okay this is also happening okay. <laughs> i, I <mean>, guess <laughs> the horny level of sympho gear mm -hmm. is about a seven out of ten which is uncomfortably high yeah but like season four is like a 6.5 out of 10 <laughs> like it's it's slightly toned down compared to some of the other seasons mm -hmm. and then you also get this villain who is just a nude man a lot of the time mm -hmm. and his weird little robot wife mm. who is this artificial construct that is built to adore and worship him and like there's a part of me that really wants to believe they were being self-aware with adam and tiki mm. yeah it's it's an interesting choice because it's like yes he is you know very clear like he created this character who's like you know weirdly a sexual child robot oh yeah, who keeps talking about how much she wants to, like, become a human so that she can marry him. It's always, like, weird, you know, every time they interact, it's like, oh, no, please don't do this. But it's like, that's how yeah. she was made. The funny thing is, Tiki's fun to watch as long as Adam's not in the scene. <laughs> Interesting. 
Interesting. Because like Tiki being a little brat and annoying Sanjaman and the others, genuinely a little bit funny. Okay. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and them just being like, you are the worst. Why do we have to deal with you? Mm-hmm. And Tiki just being like, oh, I don't care about anyone but Adam. Ha ha ha. Right. Especially toward the end when it takes on kind of a slightly darker bit. I, we're, I'm sure I, I want to talk about that scene a little bit later on. But like right. Tiki not caring about them at all mm-hmm. in some early episodes is a little bit funny. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely interesting. He is just... <laughs> he sucks. Uh, yeah. Well, yes, yes. He does suck. Um, but I think <laughs> it's very clear from the beginning that he sucks. And yes. it's a constant thing. And this is like always the case with Symphagir is that every time they introduce a new male character, you can figure out that you cannot trust him. And that's like kind of the running thing of Symphagir is like, yeah, don't trust any men except for Genjudo, basically. I was just going to say, there is one man I trust. <laughs> one. Exactly one. Um, There's two. I love Ogawa. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah. He's a business ninja. <laughs> Yeah, he did have a little bit of time to shine in this season as well. Especially in the opening sequence, which is actually my favorite opening sequence. I know everyone talks about the opening sequence to the last season with the rocket. And it's very cool. And I love Radiant Mm -hmm. Force. It's a wonderful song. But like the trio's jungle assault to Gekisho Infinity. It is a Mm -hmm. wild sequence. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, like Adam being this guy that like is in charge of everything. And so... You know, we could see the trio of alchemists are also very loyal to him. And that makes sense because they've clearly been in this group for a long time because of like their beef with Fine, I guess. Um, now they have to deal with the gear users because Simpha gear as a concept is like what Fine created that is like in their way, basically. Mm. But yeah, it's like becomes very clear, not that far along that like for Adam, it's just this is the Adam show with Adam and, you know, he's the star of everything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are some genuinely compelling villains. Adam compels you to hate him, but he does compel (laughs) you. Yeah. I mean, it's a strong personality for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Total pile of human garbage who has been (laughs) able to be garbage for a very long time. So commenting on society as a whole, perhaps. (laughs) Yeah. And I was kind of surprised that like, you know, I thought he was named Adam because like, first man or whatever but like he's named after a real person also yeah the funny thing is that's the illusion that he makes um later on when he says he he'll no longer be adam weishaupt but adam cadman that Mm -hmm. is the first man (laughs) right right so he's like he's he's going from this real life adam to becoming Mm -hmm. the mythological one which i thought was interesting yeah, I thought it was interesting that they like went so deep into like naming all these characters after real people. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting choice because like, you know, before that, like last season, we had like angels and whatever. And I guess they're so nerdy with their choices of stuff. It's like, oh, I'm now I'm like studying about old history and like yeah. real Illuminati stuff. So it's fun. <laughs> I'm also kind of an occult nerd. So Ooh. having famous occultists be kind of the the source for the villains is very appealing to me personally. <laughs> I see. Did you recognize these names like before? Only two of them. Three of okay. them. Mm-hmm. Two of them because I don't know a lot about like secret society lore. So I didn't actually know about Adam Weishaupt. But uh-huh. I did know about Cagliostro and I did know about San Germain. Yeah, for me, Cagliostro is just the castle from the one Lupin movie. <laughs> so, 
yeah, yeah. that was it i was like yeah. oh there's a real person okay <laughs> yeah that's a, cool. a famous trickster which uh yeah. she addresses several times mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she talks about how she's tired of being a fraud she's tired of lying to people like yeah it's kind of interesting that it's like basically they're canonically like these actual people in history <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to imagine like going back in time and being like so you're gonna be the namesake for this like sexy fighter girl in this series yeah, um, yeah, yeah. in the 2000s what do you think <laughs> i think that means it is time for us to talk about i believe our powerful beautiful perfect transgender villains <laughs> uh-huh which I adore, frankly. Yeah, yeah. If it was just Cagliostro, it would be a mm-hmm. little problematic because obviously there's the kind of stereotype of the the hypersexual trans woman. Yes. But Cagliostro is so tempered by Prelati and Saint Germain, neither of whom really has any kind of erotic presence whatsoever. Right. That it's like, no, this isn't their only trans woman. That's just this one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This one chose to have her boobs out all the time. <laughs> and that's her right and i will defend uh-huh. it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so from my understanding i know cagliostro and prelati are is sam germain also meant to be trans because like when we see her yes. in the past she's a little girl it looked like but perhaps i was wrong i kind of interpreted childhood san germain as kind of like an androgynous youth mm-hmm. so the show didn't have to kind of directly touch on i may be misinterpreting Mm -hmm. that but the Comte de Saint-Germain was according to the historical record a man right yes and of the three of them Mm -hmm. is the one who was rumored to genuinely have the mystic power they all claim to have Mm. the historical record takes the Comte de Saint-Germain much more seriously than Cagliostro or Prelati yeah that is interesting I think for example like the the wiki page for Symphagir on fandom doesn't say that of uh, Sanjerman only of Cagliostra and Prelati so that's kind of what I was going off of and like I didn't see anything again like and this is also like I'm looking at all this text in English so it's like oh what did they say in Japanese originally about these characters I need to read up on that but um it's an interesting choice for a lot of reasons obviously but yeah like Cagliostro and Prelati have like completely opposite like body types and everything yeah and then like the idea is that like their bodies were changed to become the perfect form to do all the things um <laughs> yeah, like I don't know it's yeah. it's interesting this is kind of the deep lore of Symphogear this is like the wiki stuff mm-hmm. the show only alludes to the idea of perfect bodies in like a couple lines of dialogue right but the deep lore in Symphogear is that the perfect body for magical or alchemical reasons is a female one because of the ability to create life or whatever. Right. And, and we're saying this is what they're saying, not that that's what a female body is. No, yeah, no, is, absolutely obviously. not. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> I genuinely don't like when anime, when magical girl anime, that is, comes up with lore reasons why the heroes have to be girls. Because it always smacks of gender essentialism, mm-hmm. which is something I genuinely can't abide. Of course. Like, I would much rather a show just, like, have all female leads and not talk about it or have leads of all genders. Both of mm. those are superior to saying, well, women are this and women are that. And this is why that makes them best suited for this, because that's a generalization that doesn't work 
or that in cases like symphogears kind of reduces women to their organs, which is not cool or good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I like that the anime only briefly tips the hat to this idea, but I don't like that it's in the lore. Right. I never like this kind of lore. Yeah, exactly. It's very frustrating. I mean, I want to say it's been a while, but Wonder Egg Priority also did this. What's very frustrating is that in more recent years, because this has definitely come up before Sailor Moon also had this thing in at least a comic. And then mm-hmm. I understand people who want like magical girls to be for girls and like focus on girls. That's, you know, there are many reasons why people enjoy that aspect of magical girls, but you don't need to give a lore reason for all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, over time, it's become less and less this thing. So like, you know, with kids shows, it's really rarely the case. I mean, like mention Mermaid Melody, basically mermen don't exist um, in the original animated series, at least. So that kind of works yeah. out. But like in general, it's like, it is very frustrating. And often immediately is also used in like direct conversation with trans identities like in this case so it just it gets very like complicated because like while these magical girl characters are not real you know trans people are real so it's like what is this saying to you know the trans viewers and so on so absolutely and one that i would harp on is madoka Mm -hmm. because the premise of madoka spoilers by the way (laughs) for a series that i think almost all of your listeners have seen by now probably yes (laughs) but like the big reveal is that the reason there are magical girls and witches boils down to women are crazy Mm -hmm. and that's i don't like it i don't like it like I mean, it's it's because adolescent girls, their mood swings. Or, no, it, it boils down to women are crazy, and that's not okay. Same as Symphogear being like, women have uteruses. That's not okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Women are what they say they are, and get off their backs about it. Exactly. Jeez. The only requirement to being a woman is just saying that you are one, and that's it. Yep. And yeah, Wonder Egg Priority did something very similar to Madoka, and then had a trans character as well, which made it like very frustrating, because it's like you know, just again, like you said, with the gender essentialism, and it's like saying that this character isn't Mm. really who they say they are because of all these other reasons why, you know, you have to have a particular body type just to even be part of this whole system or whatever. It's just like very frustrating. Absolutely. On the one hand, uh, at least this has only really been happening in series for an older audience. Um, So Mm. like, for example, Precure has never done this. And that's good. Because if a kids show did this I would be very upset because of what that would be teaching children and so it's like at least in this case we have like these this is a series for adults to watch I don't think any kids are going to be watching Symphogear anytime soon oh Uh, god I hope not (laughs) like I've heard from people who were children when Madoka came out and ended up watching Madoka because it looked like it was another kids show and their parents didn't know any better but um I think that it's pretty clear if you look at a packaging for Symphogear that it is not for children. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, kids should not be shielded from vaguely sexual content. What they should be shielded from is, first of all, Symphogear is quite, quite violent. And second of all, objectification is probably not a great thing to spring on them. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. Speaking of objectification, my favorite character. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is Maria. 
I love her so much. Uh-huh. I love her so much. She's perfect. Mm-hmm. And it kind of really bothers me. It seems like the camera will not just ease up on her and Chris for a second. Mm-hmm. And like Maria's such a great character. She's strong, but simultaneously very tender. She's very loving. She's extremely loyal and at the same time, very fierce. And I just think she's amazing. But the camera really only wants boobs. Mm -hmm. Just let her be cool. She's cool. She is very cool. I do love her a lot as well. Um, she's great. And she is also going through a lot. Um, there's a lot of like general healing from trauma in this season, I feel like. But yeah. um, it's very interesting. I think like for me, I don't mind Maria getting ogled by the camera as much as I mind Chris being ogled by the camera from the very basic fact that Maria is a full adult. Yes. She starts off the series as an adult, but Chris has been a teenager this whole time and is still a teenager. And the camera needs to like back off of her yeah. and all the other teenage characters. I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I really love Chris and Maria's duet. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and it's like these are two fantastic very different characters and the camera is just using them for eye candy right it's like i don't think that's fair or good you talked about healing from trauma and there's this really weird arc where in order to get the recipe for more linker so maria shirabe and kirika can transform again they need to go on a journey into maria's mind mm -hmm. and it's really weird <laughs> yeah yeah, that part is interesting. Um, it goes on for very long. And Dr. Ver yeah. is there being the worst. Second worst Adam is in this season. <laughs> uh -huh. There's a ranking. Uh -huh. Adam's mm -hmm. at the bottom. Sorry. I think Dr. Ware would be worse than Adam if he actually was competent in any way. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, he doesn't have a robot waifu. Yeah. Which I don't love about him mm -hmm. but let's see here you were talking about healing from trauma which actually brings me to my favorite favorite thing about this season mm -hmm. is the duets there's mm -hmm. a series of three episodes back to back to back where the cast gets scrambled into pairings that we haven't seen before and they sing duets together and i love all three of these songs i love all three of these episodes i think they're fantastic Chris and Maria's song that they sing together is called Change the Future, and it is one of my all-time favorite Symphogear numbers. Because every character in Symphogear has a unique kind of musical sound. Like, Chris has a classic rock sound. Maria has kind of a more symphonic sound. Hibiki has that Celtic rock, and you can often hear, like, bagpipes and flutes. Mm-hmm. Shirabe's music is very, very digital. Tsubasa, mm -hmm. of course, has the incredible, like, traditional Japanese sound. And so these duets not only combine the characters' voices, but also their traditional musical sound. Mm -hmm. So Change the Future is just soaring and hard rock. It's beautiful. And... They reference each other's songs from this season in the lyrics. Mm -hmm. Chris references um, Stand Up Ready. 
and Maria references, I think it's take this all loaded. No, it's gun bullet kiss, but like change the future is about how Maria and Chris can't change what they've done. Both of them have been villains in previous mm -hmm. seasons and that's happened. And it's about like facing the future together and overcoming who they used to be. It's just really beautiful. Mm. And then I really like the next episode and I would love to talk about the next episode with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's okay. You're right. Like it's the ways that the different characters are like kind of uh, bonding together is really interesting. And again, like so much of it feels so earned because we're in the fourth season and so much has happened in this show uh, over time. Yeah. yeah so I think yes. it's, you know, very satisfying. I think, I think one of the reasons why this season in general is so uh, entertaining is just like, Again, the satisfaction of all these things coming to a head after all this time. Um, yeah. But yeah. My favorite episode of this season is the middle of the three duet episodes. Absolutely. Hands down, my favorite episode of this season. We have Shirabe, who is really stressed out because everyone else can harmonize with everyone else and she can't. The mm -hmm. only person she can harmonize with is Kirika. They're an inseparable duo. And when she's away from Kirika, she doesn't know who she is and she cannot work with anyone else. And she's so worried about holding everyone back. And we get to see her interiority in this episode in a way we usually don't. Hmm. Like it's a really interesting peek into a character who's very reserved and who doesn't get a ton of screen time, solo screen time. Mm -hmm. And then they go to this adorable shrine full of bunnies. <laughs> the adorable, beautiful little moon shrine with the bunnies everywhere. And they meet just the cutest little priest. He's <laughs> just a happy, cheerful, odd little fellow. And I just love him. I forget what it is he says, but he actually says in the Japanese afterward that it was Jinja joke. And I was like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the suburbs translated that as shrine humor, but Jinja joke is just such a funny turn of phrase. Yeah, yeah. He's just such a fun guy. <laughs> and he's contrasted with the very reserved and serious Shirabe. Mm -hmm. It's cute. And then Tsubasa is worried about Shirabe the whole time because she sees herself in Shirabe. She sees the ways in which like season one Tsubasa did not want to work with anyone else, wasn't willing to let Hibiki in. Mm -hmm. And it culminates in the two of them being the only ones fast enough to pursue Prelati. Yes. And singing Fugetsu no Shiso, which is a beautiful song. Mm -hmm. They harmonize incredibly because Shirabe is so like high and delicate and Tsubasa is so low and strong. Mm. It's just, it sounds great to hear. The lyrics are gorgeous. There's a lot of references to a third character who we have not heard from since episode one, because Kanade's song is referenced constantly in this one. Hmm. If you become aware of your unseen wings, you'll go anywhere. That's a line from Kanade's image song. Hmm. Hmm. And it's followed up by I'll always be protecting you. So there's this. There's the two of them bonding, but there's also this kind of uh, memory of the Kirika that Tsubasa had and lost. Mm -hmm. I adore that episode. 
I think it's beautiful. And then the third of the duet episodes features Hibiki and Kirika. And it also has a lot of Saint-Germain in it because that's where the main plot kind of starts ramping up. Yes, yes. Actually, before we get into this episode, I do want to kind of uh, make this our spoiler point because, as you said, we're getting to the end. Like, this episode 10, so stuff is about to start going down. So, um, yes, if you don't want to hear about any of the fun spoilery stuff, I would recommend that you take a break from this. Go, Go watch the series. It's a lot of fun come back and continue listening to us talk about it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, you know, just before we get into this episode in particular, so like, as you said, you know, we've had these duets, but also the other thing about these duets is that it's through these duets that they have defeated two of the three alchemists, first Cagliostro and then Perlati. Meanwhile, Sandraman had been told by Adam that like, one of them had to sacrifice their life energy in order to unlock this power that they're trying to get at the end here. Mm-hmm. And so it's at episode 10 that Sandraman realizes, well, she's the last one left. So it has to be her, which is, you know, not something that she's really thrilled about. But, you know, she, again, is very loyal, like you said, to Adam, and she wants to see this through. So she decides to go through with it. And, you know, like we had learned all this stuff in the previous episode about how like it was the ley lines in the world and in the earth that are kind of connected and creating the the shape of Orion, the the constellation. So I think it's an interesting choice as someone who is very interested in like old mythology and stuff that it's Orion Mm -hmm. specifically because Orion sucked. I don't know why he has a constellation named after (laughs) him because he was a bad person. (laughs) Well, listen, the ancient Greeks named a lot of things after a lot of bad people. This is very true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's an interesting choice. I don't want to go into it in detail because it does deal with a lot of dark stuff and we're already talking about a lot of dark stuff. But uh, in any case, if you don't know the story of Orion... And in particular, I know very well because it's in relation to Scorpio and I am a Scorpio. And the story of why Orion sucks is also why I love that my constellation is Scorpio. (laughs) Yeah, because you get to murder him every season. Exactly. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) way too excited about stars for a second here. But yes. um, (laughs) So... Yes, like you were saying, this episode has the uh, duets with Kitika and Kitiki. But before that, we do have the tiki moment I alluded to earlier. Ah, yes. Which is where Sanjaman is giving up her life energy for this ritual. She's had these runes carved magically into her back. And she's drawn up into this pillar of light and she's in just incredible pain. And she's screaming. She's like bent over backward in agony and a phone appears and rings and Tiki just calmly picks it up and is just smiling, watching this, not caring. Mm -hmm. And like earlier Tiki not caring was kind of funny, but in this shot, I I genuinely found it chilling. Mm. Like I really like that scene, like from an impact perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, you genuinely don't care. Yeah. And Sanjaman fights uh, Hibiki and Kirika because the whole uh, unison thing, something happened with the gears that had to be cleaned off of them because they used the, um, they used a special barrier coating, something, something 
That's how the season works. <laughs> they, they use the power up that let them beat the alchemists, okay? Mm -hmm. And the power up that let them beat the alchemists caused a buildup that needed to be cleaned off. So everyone's gears are in the shop except Hibiki and Kirika. Okay? That's that's why. Yes. And I love Hitsuai Duo Shout. It is such a cute song from such cute kids. <laughs> we get to see Hibiki and Kirika being just like simple-minded, straightforward, direct little fools. And I that's what makes them so appealing. <laughs> and their duet is so appealing for that reason it's a little <laughs> bit chaotic sounding mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the metal and the the celtic rock and just the two of their voices which sound kind of similar shouting in unison mm -hmm. but it's, it's very passionate it's very genuine and i think it really shows off the appeal of these two characters mm -hmm. which is that they're genuine like yeah hibiki and kirika are just very uh they're earnest mm -hmm. And that's what makes them so lovable. Yeah, for sure. They're so fun uh, together. <laughs> yeah. They really are. <laughs> They're both just earnest, cute little fools. And it's perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the bad man shows up. <laughs> yes. Here comes the bad man. Mm -hmm. And this is where he confesses to Sandra Mann that, oh, wait, no, this was the Adam show the whole time. Mm-hmm. Cassandra Man was out to create a world without oppression. Yeah. We love an idealistic villain. Mm -hmm. We love him. Adam's not one of those. <laughs> yeah. And Sandra Man, for some reason, is just now realizing this, which, okay, all right. For the pacing of the story, I understand why she realizes it at this point, <laughs> but mm -hmm. come on. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it's time to combine forces. <laughs> but um we do get a really interesting moment which is uh kirika is the one this arc who sings the swan song yeah it's always got to be someone i i guess but it's still like oh wait a second oh no 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 i remember being a little worried yeah because kirika's baby and must be protected <laughs> yeah yeah, and you hear Shirabe just screaming. Mm hmm And it's just, it's a hard moment. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, everyone is kind of freaking out. And, you know, she does fine. She's okay, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's still, like, a lot. And then it's also a nice little ending to the episode because uh, Sanjiman decides to um, defend Hibiki and Kirika. Yeah. I messed up. Time to go on your side. Okay. <laughs> yep. Mostly just to fight against Adam in particular, because she doesn't want any world where anyone is in power, basically, is kind of the idea. Yeah. Again, very understandable, like, yeah. reasons for what she's doing. Yeah. I love her. I really do. And we also <laughs> get another one of what I think is one of the best songs in Sinful Gear, which is Hanasaku Yuki, mm -hmm. which is Hibiki's song that she sings in this episode while teaming up with Sanjermen. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's the next episode. Yeah. Oh, that is episode. the next episode. Yeah. Yes, I 11. love that song. <laughs> it is good. Yes, it's a it's a very good song. It's a favorite for a lot of people <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. And then we find out the truth about the bad man. <laughs> Listener, 
Dear listener, Ayumi misled you earlier. Ayumi <laughs> told a fib. Don't be mad. Don't be mad. Ayumi said that Adam was human garbage. But this is where we find out that that was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> He's robot garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I could not. <laughs> Couldn't keep a straight face, but he is. Mm -hmm. It's revealed when Adam's arm gets severed in a really dramatic moment that he is an autoscorer. Yep. And he's got a lot of baggage about that. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting um, thing to have, like him being the autoscorer, like final villain, if you will. Well, just in general, having the autoscores since, you know, season three has like kind of added a whole lot of extra layers of, uh, you know, discussions of humanity and and so on. So like having mm. him be the the kind of like the final villain surprise is actually an autoscore is, is an interesting choice. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. Mm -hmm. I really like this repeated motif where whenever Adam is cruel and she's taken aback by this, San Germain asks, like, have you no humanity? Mm -hmm. And at the end, he's like, no, I don't. Never did. Yeah. It was interesting the way they foreshadowed that with their interactions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a very tightly written series. So, <laughs> yeah, that's part of its appeal to me is is how tightly written it is. And he's um, he's just the worst. And it turns out that he was built to be kind of a perfect creation by the people who founded the Illuminati. But he was discarded. And according to Adam, he was discarded for being too perfect. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that was true because he sucks. <laughs> uh huh. And also, since their goal was perfection, it doesn't really make sense that he was discarded for being too perfect. I think that's Adam being an unreliable narrator. Sure, sure. I think there are lots of reasons you can discard Adam. <laughs> He's bad. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. And then it gets weird. <laughs> it does get very weird, um, these last few episodes. So this episode we get... A uh, creature known as the Divine Weapon that kind of is just, it's a giant woman, which no classic magical girl thing to have a giant woman. But mm -hmm. yeah, and this one, kind of where you might expect the gear to be, we have um, Tiki inside. So it's like clear, like Tiki is like kind of using this magic, like giant uh, weapon to to attack and, and so on. The coloring of, of this monster is like, like all purple and white and blue and stuff, but it's basically still a naked person. So it's like, okay. Mm, um, yeah. Mm. yeah. So that there's that. Uh, again, this is Symphagear that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the giant naked robot lady shoots beams out of her mouth to destroy some buildings. Mm -hmm. But here's the fun trick. She's the divine weapon. But it turns out... <laughs> Sorry. Symphagear <laughs> is also extremely bizarre. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's bizarre in a high octane, face forward, aggressive, let's keep moving, don't worry about it kind of way, which I mm -hmm. really genuinely very much like. But when I stop sure. to explain the plot of Symphogear to anybody, I collapse into giggles because it's extremely strange. <laughs> hmm. So at the very beginning, in the second episode, the alchemists summon a giant serpent. Yes. Which has this peculiar property that, like, 
connects it to other possible realities so that when it takes damage, it instead shifts into an alternate version of itself that never took the damage. Right. It's effectively immortal. And then Hibiki punches it and it dies. <laughs> and everyone is like, what? And Hibiki's like, I punched it. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, what? But they kind of let it slide. <laughs> and as this fight is going on, the divine weapon has the same property. Mm-hmm. And Hibiki has the same property. Of punch. Yes. Hibiki kind of <laughs> punches bits off of it and they stay punched off. Why is this, you ask? Well, you see, it comes down to two similar myths getting confused. Once upon a time, in the Bible times, it is said that after Christ was crucified, the Roman soldiers checked to see if he was dead by piercing his side with a spear, the soldier called Longinus, which is where we get the lance of Longinus, which is a famous Christian relic. Somehow, along the way, the other famous spear merged with that spear in the public consciousness, which formed it into the thing we remember from last season, a philosophical weapon. Because it became commonly associated with the idea of killing a god, it became capable of killing a god. What was that spear? It was Gagnir. Of course it was Gagnir. So Hibiki, it is revealed, because of people's confusing two famous spears, has the ability to kill gods with fist. Yep. The funny thing is, the tale behind some of the characters' relics, specifically Gagnir and Ichival, is that they were gathered by the Nazis during World War II because it's a kind of well-known bit of occult trivia that the Nazis kind of gathered occult things to kind of try and shore up mystical power, question mark, and that these relics passed to Japan because they were allies at the time. And that's how the main characters got them. And the Lance of Longinus is commonly believed to be one of those relics. The one itself, not Gungnir. It was weird how kind of tangentially almost historical that was for a minute. <laughs> and then it veered off to be Symphogear again. So Hibiki is the god slayer and can destroy the divine weapon. But when Hibiki destroys the divine weapon, by which I mean punches many lots, punches Tiki and destroys Tiki. Mostly. Yeah. All the divine energy that was gathered from Orion, who we all agree is a terrible guy, kind of has nowhere to go. And here's where it gets weird. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is the end of uh, this episode. <laughs> 11. Yes. Because Adam is like, well, great. I didn't need Tiki. I'm an auto scorer, which means I can be a vessel for the divine energy because I'm not a human and I'm not saddled with original sin. But the divine energy ignores Adam and goes for Hibiki. What? <laughs> it only gets weirder from here. Uh, yes. Yeah. I love this season so much, but it's so weird toward the end. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because she gets swallowed up in like this giant fleshy cocoon that's strewn across <laughs> two buildings. Yeah. And she stays there for days. 
Yeah. And, and by the way, it's very important. This is something that had actually been recurring throughout the whole entire uh, season is that her birthday's coming up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's part of why Kirika sang the swan song is to make sure Hibiki would be alive for her birthday. Yes. So she's in the cocoon. <laughs> she's in the cocoon. And no one knows what's going on in there. And they're very worried. They're very worried. Yeah. And meanwhile, the governments, several governments, are freaking out. Because of the lasers from before. Of course. <laughs> of course. Naturally. <laughs> so they want to have military intervention against the Hibiki cocoon. Mm -hmm. And Song is trying to stop that by any means necessary because they love her. Of course. Because she's lovable. Yes. And then it gets weird. <laughs> you already said that. <laughs> I did already say that. But I need you to understand that what happens next is weird. Mm -hmm. Because... The cocoon opens to reveal monster Hibiki. Yes. Who is nude in a 90s anime alien way. Yes. <laughs> the body is not flesh colored. And there's no detail. But it's nude. Yes. So she's now the giant lady. She is now the giant lady. Yeah. The same coloring as before, right? Like purple and silver or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But don't worry. Song has a plan. Mm -hmm. The plan is to shoot Hibiki full of anti-linker, which you will remember from season two. Causes people and relics to go out of sync. Right. And presumably it will cause Hibiki and the divine weapon to come out of sync. Cool. Great. Love it. Wonderful. We love this. And then question mark. I'm going to be honest with you. I've watched this season so many times. And then Hibiki is capable of altering what Anti-Linker is capable of. Mm -hmm. So it only works temporarily. But temporarily is what they needed. Mm -hmm. Because now we enter Hibiki's wife. <laughs> uh -huh. They're not married yet, but you know. They're mm -hmm. not married yet. But in season four, we have not seen a lot of Miku. Mm -hmm. she's around she's always around just being sweet and good and miku we love her and so they wheel up okay first of all to shoot up the anti-linker they fire giant needle missiles yes and this shot <laughs> sucks yeah there are two different shots and again because she is kind of naked but not really it's she's mm. naked enough that the shots are very weird they could have made her like robotic or like with the flesh too tough to really actually get through or whatever but she yeah. still has like the the flesh movement the animation that that they have to like someone has to sit down and draw is yeah. that of like flesh moving as they like inject her in just the most uncomfortable places <laughs> honestly yeah gross to watch yes it's like Sinful Gear, you were doing so good this season. <laughs> mm -hmm. You were doing so good this season, and yet here we are. Right. But then, with the anti-divine weapon juice in Hibiki, mm -hmm. they get Miku on the speakers. And Miku calls out to her, and I genuinely think that the fact that this was their plan was extremely sweet and beautiful. Mm -hmm. There's nobody Hibiki loves more than Miku. Yeah, she was a secret weapon. They do refer to her as their secret weapon, which is, I think, very, very sweet. <laughs> I just love Miku. Mm -hmm. And their plan works. 
Hibike stops being the divine weapon and kind of falls out of it. Mm-hmm. And Miku, there's this really cute scene where Miku like tears off running to go try to catch her. And it's just, it's really wonderful. I love their bond. I really do. <laughs> yeah. They're very much relationship goals. Mm-hmm. And then the light that was the divine weapon starts streaming toward a weird hole in reality. What's that? It's Adam and he's got his ripped off arm. Mm-hmm. And now he's doing the thing he tried to do last episode. But it's working this time. And also, we ha- we can't forget at this point that someone sent out yes. a, a nuclear missile to defeat the defined weapon. It was the U.S. Of course, it, it was. was the American government. Yep, makes sense. <laughs> oh, that's right, because there is like this weird president that looks like kind of Trumpy, but not exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, this bizarre like definitely Trump, but conceivably not Trump. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're just like, of course, we're going to launch a missile. Let's go. And there's this great yeah. triumphant moment where Genjiro's brother, Tsubasa's father, who is a diplomat, is like, I did it. I talked to the UN out of an armed intervention. I did it. I saved the day. And then the American president is like, <laughs> yeah, and hits the button and doesn't care. Exactly. <sighs> oh, so, there's that. Oh. Yeah, but of course, that means somebody has to go and uh, stop the missile. And luckily, uh, Sandra Man is there to save the day. And it turns out that uh, two others are also there to save the day because it turns out Cagliostro and Perlotti didn't actually die. So that was awesome. No. They faked their deaths because they overheard what Adam was planning and wanted to get him. Yep. And wanted to protect San Germain. So that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get Shito Erigkite, which is a really gorgeous song. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love the three-part harmony in it. I love the just kind of soaring vocals. It's a beautiful, beautiful one. And they use a bullet that Perlati engineered and the power of their song, and their own life energy to contain and convert this uh, this nuke mm-hmm. in a really gorgeous scene. It's a really good send-off for them. I love it. Hibiki's so upset. She comes to just in time to see it. She hates it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, it's throughout all of Symphogear. Hibiki wants to reach out to people. And so just when she was close to reaching San Germain, she gives up her life. And Hibiki comes to to see this. Like everything she's worked for coming apart in front of her. And it's... She hates it. That's genuinely very sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, again, like these villains were so fun and interesting and they didn't, they didn't get to make it. Yeah. Yeah. I would also say I feel pretty bad about it, too. Yeah. But, yeah. And then, as we mentioned before, uh, (laughs) we have uh, Adam's arm. But Tiki, who is barely alive, uh, stops him. And we love to see it. (laughs) We love to see it. Yeah. So she stops him from getting a hold of that power. Because, like, his arm is, like, turning into a giant arm also. um, But he can't actually reach it himself with his, his actual body. 
And it's kind of like unclear whether Tiki is actually trying to stop him from getting the power or if like she's just like still kind of in her own little like headspace of like, I need to be with Adam or whatever. It's a little. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, she just desperately wants a hug. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, he can't reach the arm. So Hibiki can punch it and save the day. Yeah. Yeah. But then they do have to fight Adam and he's a monster. like literally a monster yes so that is the final episode yes (laughs) i really like that fight scene Mm -hmm. partially because axiano kaze is a beautiful song it kind of it references everybody's songs it references all the songs from this season Mm -hmm. it's a nice six-part song i like it and they're fighting together but because of the curse of balal which is this recurring theme in Symphogear that because of this curse, people can't understand each other. They can't achieve true unison and beat him. Mm-hmm. And then Hibiki wins. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of how to describe Hibiki wins. Hibiki's gear breaks down because Hibiki is the only one who didn't have the after effects cleaned off because she was in the cocoon. Right. But then everyone lends her their power. And she gains this kind of amalgamated gear that is Gugnir, but it's also got everyone else's abilities. Mm-hmm. And she uses that to beat up Adam a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's all gold. It's very cool. <laughs> it is. It's extremely cool. Yeah. And then in the end, Adam says, Hope was murdered today. Hmm. And actually, I'm not sure that's the exact word he uses, but... um. He kind of alludes to the fact that there's something worse coming that only he would have been able to defend humanity against and become mm-hmm. humanity's ruler. Like, don't get me wrong. He wasn't being altruistic about it. But he alludes to the fact that by defeating him, they've kind of removed the one thing holding back this future threat. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. And then we get Hibiki's birthday. <laughs> we get Hibiki's birthday. It's yes. cute. Shirabe cooks. Yeah. Tomatoes, my favorite food. <laughs> and uh, Elf Nine discovers why Hibiki was able to be a vessel for the divine power. Mm-hmm. Because in season two, when she got blasted by the light of the Sensho Jing, it basically spiritually cleansed her of original sin. Mm. Yeah. But wait. <laughs> it wasn't just Hibiki who got hit by that laser. And then, then it's the end of the season. Yeah. <laughs> I watched this when it was coming out. So that final shot where they're talking about, wait, it wasn't just Hibiki. And there's this close up of Hibiki and Miku playing cards together. Mm-hmm. Set me up with a lot of anticipation for next season. Mm-hmm. And a lot of trepidation. I don't want anything bad to happen to Miku. I love Miku. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I really like the way they ended this, even if they took a really weird road to get there (laughs) yeah yeah so pretty interesting is there anything else you wanted to talk about regarding the season we didn't really get to go into talking about elf nine quite yet so i don't know if you want to talk about her a bit more i mean i just like that elf nine was just a regular part of the cast for this one Mm -hmm. like after being this weird kind of emissary from carol this weird little 
I don't want to say turncoat because that was kind of part of the plan question mark, but it was nice to see Elf Nine go from being so plot critical to just being part of the team. Hmm. And seeing everyone except Elf Nine as just a normal part of the team was really sweet to me. And I liked it a lot. I mean, that's kind of what happens with every season, right? It's like, you know, the characters, a lot of villains, if they don't die, then they just become part of the team, um, which is just a kind of classic trope, I suppose, but lots of fun to see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I would say that, like, her work at Song is definitely also very uh, important for the the show and everything uh, for the girls to yes. be able to win. So there's that. And I love the little labby coat. <laughs> it's just so cute. It's so big for her. It's too big. <laughs> Elf Nine's so little and the coat is so big. Yeah. I love it. It's cute. It's mm-hmm. a classic look. Mm-hmm. Tiny scientist, big lab coat, but it gets me every time. It's a cute look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So I guess with that, we covered all the problematic stuff pretty much as we were talking about things. So I don't think we have anything extra we need to say there. The same sort of things as before. If you've already been watching Sinfagir, you kind of know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just like the, the kind of added the fandom confusion regarding the trans characters of Cagliostro and Perlotti at the very least, if not also San Germain is like, it's just a little frustrating just because it's like, for me, it's like very clear, oh, these are just trans characters, but it's like the idea of like, well, they just needed the perfect body doesn't mean they're trans is something I've seen quite a lot. And it's like very, it's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think my argument against that is that Cagliostro is loving it. Mm-hmm. Cagliostro loves being a woman. She's mm-hmm. having a great time. <laughs> Yeah. She talks all the time about her womanly intuition and her estrogen and like she's genuinely living life. And you know what? No, that's a woman right there. <laughs> yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I could see it if it was just Sanjaman and Prilati because they don't really seem to interact with the idea of their gender, which is fine also. Mm-hmm. But you can't tell me that Cagliostro isn't having a great time being a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially because, like you said, it, there's a whole thing about her being like, you know, not wanting to be a trickster anymore, wanting to be honest. And it's like, if her being honest is her like really emphasizing that she's a woman, it sounds like she's a woman. <sighs> oh, I hadn't thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Maybe not being a lady was the trick. For sure. And you don't feel like you have to play that trick anymore. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) The real trick was the closet. Oh, I love that. Yeah. (laughs) That's beautiful. So, yeah, with that, then, I think we are down to the final question, which is, um, Kat, have you ever imagined a magical persona for yourself? I have. Tell us more. (laughs) And this is going to go against what I said at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. But I was really deeply impacted by some aspects of Happiness Charge Precure. Mm -hmm. One of them being that you got to see Precure from around the world. Mm. You got to see French Precure. You got to see the adorable, wonderful Net Precure from India. I love them. (laughs) So it kind of introduced this idea that Precure wasn't a strictly Japanese phenomenon, that there were Precure around the world fighting. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking about what Canadian Precure would be like, because 
I am Canadian. They don't show a Canadian precure. That's true. Well, they'd probably be led by someone called something like Cure Maple. (laughs) But I have more of a yellow girl energy and I live out west. Mm -hmm. So I would be Cure Prairie. Oh, cute. (laughs) I think the Canadian precures would have a nature theme. We're very proud of our nature up here. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Something like beautiful nature precure or something. (laughs) Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. The thing I did really love about Happiness Charge was the global scale of it. It was charming. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I have, in addition to an early teen spent making Sailor Moon OCs, Mm -hmm. more recently, yeah, being Cure Prairie. (laughs) Being the yellow girl. Yeah. What does being a yellow cure mean to you? Being cheerful and adaptable and... I guess flexibility is kind of the the main thing that you see in Yellow Girl. Yellow Girl rolls with it. Mm -hmm. No matter how weird or scary it is, (laughs) she'll just roll with it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with a smile on her face. (laughs) I like that. Sure. My all-time favorite cure is Cure Sunshine. So, Gotcha. I just adore her. (laughs) Yeah, she's great. Okay, so in that case, I think we're all ready to wrap up so thank you again for coming on the podcast genuinely my pleasure (laughs) yeah Uh, where can people find you and follow you online and could you tell us more about your game stuff yes i write under the the kind of trade name peach garden games and i also do a lot of actual play podcasts i helm the award-winning podcast sword of symphonies where my good cool friends playtest my game heroic chord but more germane to the conversation, I wrote a game called Blazing Him, which is an extremely transparent Symphogear fan game <laughs> with enough Evangelion in it that you can't, strictly speaking, say it's just Symphogear. And mm-hmm. because I was so uh, obsessed with the idea of doing an actual play of it, I kickstarted an actual play podcast called Roar to Heaven. We're close to finishing recording on it. As of right now, there are four episodes released. And it is just an intense mech anime inspired slugfest about teen soldiers in music powered battle armor. So if you enjoy Symphogear, you might like Roar to Heaven. I hope you would at any rate. Can confirm. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I really am. It's, it's genuinely my baby. I work very hard on it and I adore my mm-hmm. cast. They're all completely perfect. Yeah. Including mutual friend Aaron. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, if you want to play Symphogear at your table, maybe look up Blazing Him. Might be the thing for you. Mm. And if you want to listen to people do that, yeah, check out Road to Heaven. Mm. So where would people be able to get a hold of Blazing Him? Blazing Him can be found on the Peach Garden Games website at peachgardengames.com or on our itch at peachgardengames.itch.io. But you can also just search it on itch. Mm-hmm. And Roar to okay. Heaven can be found anywhere you get podcasts. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, where can people find you on oh, me. the socials? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that don't tell anyone, hey, 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 listener, hey, Sparkle Side Chats listener, hey, don't tell the other Roar to Heaven listeners, but the trio of villains in Roar to Heaven... <laughs> are a little bit based on the alchemists from Simple Gear Season 4. Ooh, because I love them so much. 
Hmm. Hmm. I see. Yes. Okay. Well, I will definitely be keeping that in mind as I continue listening to that podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I take some liberties, but they are very much based on San Germán, Prelati, and Cagliostro. And Hmm. you can find me on Twitter at CatlingGun. That's C-A-T-L-I-N-G Gun. (laughs) Yes. Great. So uh, all those links will also be in the show notes for people to click on over. And uh, yeah, that's everything. So thank you again for coming on. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too. This has been a delight. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you like it, and don't forget to tell your friends about the show if you think they'd be interested. If you use social media, don't forget to use the hashtag SparkleSideChats when talking about and sharing the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MagicalGirlAyu, spelled A-Y-U. And you can find me at Knows, A-Y-U-S-H-E-K-N-O-W-S. You can also email us at sparklesidechats at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a topic you want covered or a fan or creator you want to hear from by filling out the form in the show notes. You could also join the Discord for this podcast to talk about magical girls 24-7, often chatting directly with me and both previous and upcoming guests of the podcast. Look for the link in the show notes. Show notes can be found on your platform of choice or at anchor.fm slash sparkleside. If you can support the podcast financially, you can buy me a coffee at co-fee.com slash you can also commission me for art there or buy a print on my imprint page. With a Kofi monthly membership, you can get bonus content, announcements about episode topics, a Discord role, and your name read aloud on the podcast monthly. Another way to support us one time is by buying something off the Amazon Japan wishlist. This helps with getting more access to Magical Girl content that we can discuss in future episodes. Feel free to purchase from the used section as we are not picky here. Original podcast music is by Hazel. You can find her on Twitter at A Few Bruises. Thanks again for listening, and remember, you are magical. <laughs> <laughs>